welcome back to Tuesday at Dobbs's. It's the final video, or the final podcast video from Bali. Tomorrow is our final day, and we head off on Wednesday morning. Can't believe it, two and a half months, and it'll be the last time I do a podcast from this room. Right, this week's episode is proudly sponsored by XL Moto. That's the one-stop motorcycle shop for all your biking needs, whether it's panniers and luggage racks or luggage systems for motorbikes, clothing for bikes, service materials for oil change, changing the chain, anything you need, all under one roof, Excel Moto. All of the details in the written description. As always, please do get in touch with any questions or thoughts you've got. Leave a comment below or send an email to hi at Tuesday at Dobbs. Right, let's get to it. About the benefits biking can have on all of us. Freddie, I was involved in a conversation not too long ago about the dangers of motorcycle riding. And despite my best efforts, I was unsuccessful in convincing a coworker that the joy that comes from riding outweighs the risk. I began to think we all have at some point had this conversation with friends and loved ones to no avail. Motorcycles are very polarizing to some extent. Most people either love them or hate them or, or hate them out of fear. But in the world we live in today, can that truly be justified? If you believe in the COVID narrative and the possibility of sickness, you could be on a ventilator struggling to stay alive simply by exposing yourself to everyday life. And that's the key word, life. Life is precious and time is short. I know there are many people listening to your podcast and watching your videos who don't ride but desperately want to. And for, for whatever reason might be on the fence, wondering, should I? shouldn't I? Usually money is not one of the issues. Motorcycle riding can be as cheap as chips if you look hard enough for a good deal. It's typically an objection from a spouse, family member or friend. The thought of motorcycles to so many are met with so much negativity and it's unfortunate because motorcycles are truly life-changing. It's far more than just a mode of transport. It's a way of experiencing the world around you on a deeper level. Nothing else comes close to the open air feeling. I've learnt that life is made up of experiences and for someone to get to the end of, uh, of their life without experiencing riding, at least for me, would be a huge regret. Life is temporary on this earth. But the question is, what are we going to do with this precious time? that we've been blessed to have. Happy riding. Now, I remember before I started the podcast on YouTube, I had a similar question come up and it's, it's one of my favorite either questions or areas around biking in general. Because I remember about, it's probably about 11 or 12 years ago now, uh, I, was, I was just trying to think of or coming to terms with in my head the, the, the benefits of, of doing what you want to do and making sure that you, you do exactly what you want to do. And I know that sounds like a, a fairly broad statement, but I remember a few years ago, all of my friends went to Glastonbury. 
which is a festival. And I didn't go because I thought it would be better to, to save a bit of money, to make sure that I was in a, a financially stable position. So I thought, look, it's probably best just not to go. And I felt so, so awful for not going to Glastonbury. I thought that would be the last time I ever miss out on an opportunity, if there's any possible chance that I can have that opportunity. There was an article about 11 years ago in The Guardian, and it was from a nurse who interviewed end-of-life patients. And she asked those end-of-life patients what their regrets were. And they gave five main regrets. So this is the five main regrets from the dying. I know it sounds a bit morbid, but this article I read, it was probably about 10 years ago when I read it, and it coincided exactly with this, this missed Glastonbury opportunity. And I remember reading it and thinking, the best possible thing we can do if we're wondering about inspiration and whether or not to take up an opportunity, just listen to some of, this, some of these ideas, some of this insight and advice from the older generation, specifically here, a lot on their deathbeds, and what are their regrets? And for me, this is just the best advice. Number one, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expect me to live. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Number four, I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. And finally, number five, I wish I had let myself be happier. And that's the key. I always think if I'm on my deathbed, what will I be proud of? What will I be happy with? Will I be happy in myself if I paid off more of my mortgage or made sure that I, I paid more into my pension at the expense often of an opportunity in life? No, I'm not going to look on my, de my deathbed thinking, well done, Fred. Well done, you, you paid off some of your mortgage. You made sensible choices. I want to look back and think, yes, I did everything possible I could do, whether that's experiences or things such as biking that I, I was desperate to do. And if I wouldn't have done that, would it be something that I would end up regretting? Because sometimes... We have to be selfish. We have to just do what we want to do, purely because we want to do it and we don't need to give an answer. If I have a chat with someone, for example, who, who has no interest in biking or they are amazed that people bike because it's so dangerous. But for me, the biking isn't a negative part. Biking is dangerous and that's part of the magic, the fact that you feel so close to everything around you. The element of danger is what makes biking so fun. Take away the biking or take away the danger and you're just in a car. That's the magic of biking. So thank you for sharing that. I, I really, really enjoy that kind of question and looking at why we do something and do we need to justify doing something because deep down we love it. Is there any need for a justification other than we want to do it? I move on. Freddie, I'd love to hear or I'd love to know your hereditary history and your stories. Steve, actually, this comes at a perfect opportunity. I realise I'm taking over a lot, of the, a lot of the spotlight here in this podcast, so apologies if I ramble a bit. But around about two months ago, let me give you a little backstory because this comes at the perfect timing. 
My auntie found, uh, or one of my family members who are Swedish, because my grandma's Swedish, uh, and she's got, uh, and I've got a lot of family in Sweden and Finland. And one of my relatives in Sweden was clearing out an attic in a home in Sweden. And they uncovered a huge amount of old photos. And I'll put some of these photos up here. And my auntie sent me these photos and she said, Freddie, is there any way you can figure out what these motorbikes are? Because this here will be my great grandfather on an old motorbike in Sweden, a little village. And I put the question to people on YouTube and Instagram. I said, does anyone know what these motorbikes are? It was a gigantically wide ranging list of potential answers, but the most popular answer was an Indian motorcycle. So I said to my auntie, look, to the best of my knowledge, these are, or at least one of these, are Indian motorcycles. But about, about two weeks later, a Swedish gentleman got in touch with me and he said, Freddie, I can get in touch with the Swedish archives and I can find out exactly what this bike is and what year it was made. So I gave him all the details I could, including the registration, and he found out through a list. And let me put the details here because these are the Swedish motorcycle vehicle registration history documents that are available to everyone if you're willing to wait long enough. And he found out that it was a 1917 Harley Davidson. So my great grandfather in Sweden was riding around the Swedish villages on a 1917 Harley Davidson. We later found out it was decommissioned in around about 2029 and I think he actually donated the bike to a political party. But that's part of the history. Great grandfather in Sweden riding around on a Harley Davidson. And it's just fantastic, the biking community, because no one really could figure out exactly what that bike is until we found out the exact details on that old registry in Sweden. It's fantastic. Right, I move on. Steve, thank you for that. To, to Lee, Freddie, you mentioned that the southeast of England isn't great for riding. And on the whole, I would agree with you. However, I've learned that it's all about picking your moment. The southeast is busy and good roads can get clogged up with cars. So I've started to become an early riser at the weekends and make the most of the countryside roads. Like a lot of people at the moment, I've struggled with mental health and with a full-on family life and full-time job, it's tough to find any time to decompress. So I've started to get my chill out time very early on a Sunday morning where I'm on the bike at 6am and can get an amazing ride through the West Sussex countryside to the coast without seeing more than a handful of cars. It feels like the roads are all mine and the stresses and strains of life just fade away. I found a coffee shop on the beach that opens at 7am and can enjoy a bit more me time. And then I head back while the roads are still deserted and the countryside and vistas just for me to enjoy. Leave it another hour or so and it would be a different matter. Yes, it's tough to drag myself out of bed, but the rewards are so worth it and I get back in time to crack on with family life fully refreshed. It's a golden two hours only for me. If any riders out there are struggling, I fully recommend this as a way to enjoy some solitude and serenity before another busy day starts. Lee, I love this. This is a proper feel-good message. Thank you for sending this to me. I also agree 
and I'm not going to pretend that I always head off at 7am to go on a ride because Monica's behind me and she would t tell everyone that it's absolute nonsense. But if I can pick, I will also always go on an early morning ride. I just love the feeling waking up in the morning, the air smells different. You've got all the excitement of heading out, what the rest of the day will bring you. And knowing that you can get back at 10 or 11 a.m. as well after a proper length ride, it's a magical thing. That is some great advice, Lee. I'm moving on to John. Freddie, talking of keeping a bike or two, not to ride, but to own as a piece of biking history. Ah, yes, this is about a gentleman last week who said they wanted to buy a bike from a, a nostalgic point of view. But is it ridiculous buying a bike more just because you want to enjoy owning the bike as opposed to riding it. I said, no, absolutely not. Just having that feeling of nostalgia around to experience it. It's brilliant. Well, I've got some first-hand experience here from John talking about keeping a bike but not riding it. Uh, about six or seven years ago, my wife, uh, about six or seven years ago, sorry, uh, my, myself and my wife, Linda, said that we would like to buy a classic bike to cherish. So I started to look and came across a 1951 BSA Bantam D1 at a proper classic dealership in Oxfordshire. They delivered it and it runs perfectly. We kept it in a room next to our garage, covered up. Two years later, Linda said she'd like another classic bike. And so this time found a nice James Captain in maroon color. I have to Google that, James Captain. I do not know this. Again, a 1951 model. Both bikes have rigid back ends, no suspension. They're both 70 years old this year, the same as my wife. We now keep, we, we now keep them at each end of the living room and can admire them as pieces of art. She would never sell them. I'm 74 and we now ride scooters. She has a one-year-old Vespa and I have a 300cc Vespa and two 125cc Hondas. We've been, uh, we've been on a ride through the lanes this afternoon together living the dream. Oh, John, I can just picture it. Two classic bikes either side of the living room. There's no finer art than that. It's fantastic. Valve clearances. I move on. Uh, I said I haven't even checked the valve clearances on the Bonneville and it's on 38,000 miles. I had a lot of input on this and I want to share four or five of a range of different inputs from people. So thank you for this. I begin with AG. Freddie, people should ask your <laughs> Okay, I remember this one. Freddie, people should ask your advice, but should they follow it for bike maintenance? I pointed out that your chain was hanging off some years ago, which is pretty basic stuff to maintain, and regular servicing can spot things like a spark plug not being loose, so the rider has a less fraught time traveling through France. That's referring to me almost breaking down coming back from Spain because I didn't realize the spark plug was loose and I thought my bike was going to blow up. And all I had to do, just push a spark plug back in and I didn't realize that until the end of the trip. So it's a point well taken. I continue, I'm an independent tech and my advice would be when a person buys a bike, do homework and running costs first and don't buy what you can't afford. I agree with that, and I've learned that firsthand, not to buy what I can't afford, because I've made that mistake before. Moving on, Freddie, greetings from Poland. Regarding valve clearance checks being essential or not, 
I believe it's quite important for overall engine health and performance. Because of some, because of some boring tech basics, I will now allow myself to cover. There are three states of valve clearance possible to occur. Correct, too light, too loose. Correct is obvious, the engine is happy and you get the most of its performance. Too tight, however, means that the valves do not close properly when it should, leaving combustion chamber, chamber partially open. The engine loses its compression, which means its power, it loses power and your fuel economy gets compromised. At extreme, an exploding air-fuel mixture may retract through the intake and damage your injection system and carburetor, or the valve may uh, eventually touch the piston and happily convert your engine into a very expensive bucket of nails. Second, clearance too loose, on the other hand, renders a nasty clicking noise. Okay, this is interesting. The clearance too loose renders a nasty clicking noise coming from the engine and degrades its performance as well, as the valves do not open as wide as they should, and therefore the engine doesn't inhale the correct amount of air and or does not exhaust the fumes at expected pace. I think this may be a slight problem with my Bonneville. I think I've had a few people saying this to me about my Bonneville, that it sounds like the tappets could be out, so I carry on with this. And uh, do, do it so too tight, clearance too loose, and then I believe the clearance check adjust, adjustment job is so expensive, not only due to the complexity of modern engines running liquid-cooled four-valve per cylinder with variable timing, yada yada, but also because the amount of labour required to carry in order to actually get to the valves themselves. They often have to almost virtually rip the bike apart. And this is when my Moto Guzzi V7 comes in with all its agricultural glory, having just two valves per cylinder and its Traverse V-twin, not even requiring a full tank removal to perform the valve job. I simply love this bike for being ridiculously easy to work on, even for such a can't-hit-the-side-of-a-barn-grease-monkey-as-myself. Happy riding to all my fellow listeners and viewers. Good insight, Martin. I've learned something there. And with regards to the tappeting noise, I'm now starting to think I may need to get the tappets checked, potentially on my Bonneville. It's either that or my loose exhaust, which I should get changed. I'm hoping it's the exhaust, but I'll be open-minded to the tappets. On to Retsford Moto. Continuing the topic, Freddie, I'm not mechanically inclined. However, I bought a Royal Enfield International international interceptor 650 last fall the valve clearance check is required at 300 miles and every 6,000 miles after that I just watched a YouTube video and tackled it myself Royal Enfield uses the screw type adjuster so it's really easy other bikes I've heard not so easy this is one of the reasons I bought a Royal Enfield so you can save on dealer maintenance I've heard this before You've either got the, the shim adjustment for va valve clearances or you've got the screw adjustment. One of those two types and the screw adjustment is much, much easier to adjust. So if you're looking for a bike that's extremely easy to maintain and you can more easily adjust your valve clearances, I think that's the term, adjust valve clearances, I would look for a screw type. 
excuse me, I'd look for screw type adjustment because from what I've heard from a lot of people, much, much easier. I move on. Freddie, the one thing I must stress, if you're doing this for the first time and you're not mechanically inclined, you must assume this job will take two to five times longer than someone who's experienced, depending on how perfect and careful you want to be. Valve clearance, if you don't do your research, is something you can, uh, that can keep your bike on the shelf for days or longer. Most bikes built between 2000 and 2010 were literally designed for the owner to service everything, including the valves. It's absolutely criminal of the manufacturers to make it this hard and this expensive on newer, current future bikes to do the basic servicing themselves. Moving on to Jeff. Jeff, is this true? Mate, got the same triumph as yours. 160,000 kilometers on the clock, no valve clearances done, goes like the clappers. Jeff, please send me a pic of the Bonneville. Too high at Tuesday at Dobbs's. Tuesday at Dobbs. Please send a, a pic of your Bonneville. I would love to see a pic and I'll share it. 160,000 kilometers on a Bonneville, no valve clearances done. I think. The, the other highest mileage Bonneville I've heard is 100,000 miles. And it just goes to show, bikes can do car level mileage. I mean, yes, the obvious maintain them, yada, 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 but bikes can do it. They can do car level mileage. But on bikes, for some reason, we consumers, including me, think that anything above 30,000 miles on a motorbike is high mileage. Anything above 30,000 miles. It's insane the amount that prices drop after bikes get up to about that 30K mark, 50K mark, and well, forget it. It's basically an old commuter bike that you're not going to be able to sell for 60% of a bike with just 30,000 miles less. The amount of times I look at Harleys, uh, and I will look at a Harley Davidson, and it will be, let's say, 13,000 pounds with about 8,000 miles on the clock. And then if I get lucky, Every so often I could find a Harley with 60,000 miles on the clock. And it could be the same model Harley Davidson, same year. But instead of costing about 12,500 pounds, it could genuinely be down at about 7,000 pounds because no one wants high mileage motorbikes. But that's where the magic is. You can get your dream bike for nothing. This was about four months ago. There's a, a I promise you this is true. On Facebook Marketplace, there was a 2019 Triumph Speedmaster, so the new 1200cc Triumph Speedmaster with 60,000-ish miles on the clock. I mentioned it in a podcast about half a year ago. This stayed around on Facebook Marketplace for months. It did not sell, and it was 6,000 pounds, where the going rate for one of normal mileage would be something like 10,000, 10,000 pounds, but you get to save four grand for getting a massive mileage one. And they can do the mileage. Right, rant over, I continue. Oh, I've gone into such a rant, I've lost where I was. Ah, from Jim. Freddie, I use a non-franchise service mechanic. I inquired if he can adjust the tappets as per the schedule, and to my dismay, he said, 
doesn't need it and claim that most motorbikes don't actually need the, the valves that Tappets adjusted. I was knocked over by his honesty. He could have done nothing at all, charged me for the valve adjustment, which he hadn't done. So whenever I mention his name to other dealers wanting to know if my bike has service history, they give him the thumbs up despite being non-franchise. He said you can hear, he said, the mechanic said, you can hear if the tappets need adjustment. If you don't hear if the tappets need adjusting, well then the tappets don't need adjusting. It's fascinating. I hope I've given, I've learnt a lot here, I hope I've given some food for thought with the tappets. Take away from everything I've seen here, from tappets. If your bike sounds fine and it doesn't sound tappety, then they're almost certainly fine. I've had a lot of people who messaged me that I didn't share. Bikes with 40, 50, 60,000 miles on the clock, they've never done or checked the valve clearances. Moving on to Ryan from Texas. Freddie, here's a question for you. If you were, say, born in 1950 and, uh, and were 25 years old in 1975 and every bike or car around was still carburetted and on leaded petrol, would you still be the avid, enthusiast biker for life you are now? Ryan from Texas. Oh, Ryan, I've got to share a funny story with you first. I remember my... My first ever car was a Vauxhall Corsa, a Vauxhall Nova. And I wrote it off after four weeks. And, and then my second car, because I had run out of all my money after crashing my first, was the most ludicrous, let me see if I can find a pick, Nissan Sunny. 1989 Nissan Sunny. I think I paid about 400 pounds for it. I put uh, speakers in it. I sprayed the bumpers, the front and back bumpers to color code it. I thought I was Vin Diesel from the Fast and the Furious. And this was in about the year 2003. And this was just at the end of leaded petrol still being available. So you could go into Safeways, which was an old supermarket where I used to work, and you could buy leaded petrol, four-star leaded petrol from supermarkets. And I would go in for the first three months of owning this Nissan Sunny. And because I thought I was Vin Diesel from the Fast and the Furious, I thought I always needed the best fuel because the best fuel would mean that my car would run optimally and I could win in all of the street races I was getting into. And I would, all, I would go to the petrol stations and it would say four-star leaded fuel. So I assumed this was the best fuel for the car. I didn't know what leaded and unleaded meant, the difference. Uh, and so I would fill up with leaded fuel until someone at the petrol station said, well, that's funny, you're filling up with leaded fuel. And I said, no, no, it's the, the four-star premium. I'm like, no, 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 you've, you've got it all wrong. That's, that's leaded fuel, that's for old cars. And I went bright red and drove off, and that's the last time I ever filled up my car with leaded fuel. So I just about remember what it was like filling up with leaded. Um, but to answer your question, Ryan, of course I would. Of course I would still be the biking fanatic if, we, if there were still carbs and everything was leaded. Yes, it would, it would be harder for me, but I would completely get over it. The first three of the, two of the first three bikes I ever had were carbed. And I love biking just as much. I may have been furious with having carbed bikes because they would never start in the winter. And I would always have to run my bike when I had my night shift. I'd run my bike down a street because it would never start. It was a bit like a bobsleigh. And I'd have to run as fast as I could, throw myself onto the bike. 
and then desperately try and push start it. I had to do this with my cars as well, my first three cars. So I'd always, for cars and bikes, have to park on a downhill, run with them, throw myself on, desperately try and start it. And then of course, if it didn't start when I got to the bottom of the hill, I would almost be in floods of tears because I'd have to push up in all of my work clothes, fully kitted up, push the bike back up the hill, sweating buckets, literally stinking like I've been in a marathon and try again. And sometimes it would take four or five times to start it with me basically in floods of tears in my helmet. The most pathetic sight. So yes, I would still love biking, but the problem is I've got the taste for it now, Ryan. I've got the taste for injection and I, I cannot go back. But of course, I'd be just as big a fan. Moving on. Freddie, just want to ask your opinion. You say people need to buy a lot of different bikes until they know which kind of bike is the best. And that makes a lot of sense. But I don't have the money to buy bikes every year to check that out. I live in Portugal. Taxes are high and the pay is low. I own a 2022 Honda SuperCub C125. I commute on it every day and I love it. I'm six foot. 200 pounds, so I probably look a bit like a clown on it, but still, I adore it. It's nimble. It sounds like a boat in Vietnam and it's comfortable. It just puts a smile on my face every time. I guess it's my kind of bike, but I would love a bigger bike to go cross country and maybe Europe. Something with a big engine, 650 cc, 850, 1100, whatever. Can you help me? Give me your opinion on something that feels a bit like a cub. I love Royal Enfields, Triumphs, Hondas, BMWs. But as I told you, I can't afford to buy a lot of bikes just to test which one would make me feel happy like my cub. Please, if you have the time, give me some advice about this or here in your podcast. Portugal. Riding heaven. I've never been to Portugal in my life, but too many people have told me it's riding heaven, so it's a place I must go. So being riding heaven and knowing that you want to cross the glorious European continent for, for some bigger trips, I'm going, to go, I'm going to go a little bit bigger. You like a super cub? Well, I like a cub as well. I'm going to make an assumption that we like very similar kinds of bikes. And your budget, I think, will be extremely similar to the budget I had when I bought my Triumph Bonneville. Because if you've got a 2022 Honda Super Cub, I'm guessing your budget will be around about the three to three and a half thousand pound mark. So with that said, I need to find something, the smallest engine size, let's say this first, the smallest engine size you've mentioned is 650 and you want something that's big. So I'm going to go a bit bigger than this, just to cover you in case you find that actually you want something even bigger, because the reason for this, you want a big engine bike. So let's go bigger. Let's go 800cc as a minimum. And let's go 60 horsepower as a minimum. So you can tour with absolute ease. Three and a half thousand pound budget. You want to have that lovely characterful feel, that nostalgic feel of the Honda Super Cub. Well, there's only, there's just one answer for me. And that's my Bonneville. My Bonneville cost me £3,650. It has that same lovely nostalgic feeling of the Cub. It's incredibly easy to ride. It will 
across Europe with no issue at all. It's got the power there, it's adaptable. So if you want a touring bike, you can put some panniers on with ease. You can put a rear rack on, get the king and queen seat on. It's as comfy as a Harley Davidson. But you can strip all that off and you're left with a stripped back cafe racer. It can do everything. It's a bike that can fit exactly to your needs and requirements, getting rid of any need you may have to ever change the bike again. I promise you as someone from experience with this. It's at least in England, three and a half grand for one of these if you go into Facebook Marketplace. It also costs almost nothing to maintain. I think I, think I said I, I've taken it once to a mechanic and someone pulled me up on this because that was a lie. I think I've taken it to a mechanic twice and owning it for four years, but I think it's cost me, including two mechanics trips in four years, it can't be more than 100, 150, maybe 150 pounds a year to maintain. It's never gone wrong, apart from a battery which was needed. And the only big thing I've had to spend on has been a chain, a chain and sprockets. So battery, chain, sprockets, and to the best of my knowledge, nothing else apart from tires. Even the tires on my Bonneville have 17,000 miles on the clock. It will cost you pennies to buy, pennies to maintain, and it will be a bike that you will never feel the need to get rid of. I promise you. Get the Bonneville from 2009 onwards, because 2008, they switched from carb to fuel injection. That's the sweet spot. So to be safe, get a 2009 on Triumph Bonneville. You will not regret it. Right, I move on. Bluetooth systems. This is something I had no knowledge on, but it was mentioned last week. And I recommended to get the slickest Bluetooth system and bear in mind, I, I speak of no experience. Why not buy a helmet with all of that, whether it's Cardo system or whatever, built in? Because that will be the slickest way to have a Bluetooth system. There's no extra wiring, everything's easy, it's all seamless. But I've had some interesting insight from people as to why that may not be the best. <clears throat> Excuse me. Why that may not be the best option. Have a listen from Julian. Freddie, good afternoon. Definitely buy a helmet with Bluetooth built in. You always have everything available regardless of which bike you're riding. Thank you, Julian. I move on. Two big drawbacks with the Senna and other makes for built-in Bluetooth. First, the helmet tends to fit heads, not the other way around. Yes, the looks of a helmet and its safety credentials matter, but of equal importance is comfort. A helmet, or indeed entire helmet range, could be built around round heads, oval heads, long heads, or any combination, such as long ovals or intermediate ovals. Our eye, for example, tend to be the latter. So forcing a head in the wrong helmet is not the way to go. Secondly, we tend to use different helmets, sometimes for, for style, but also because they have different characteristics, characteristics such as airflow, visibility, and sound level. The beauty of independent units is that they can be swapped out between helmets. It usually takes five to 10 minutes or so once you've got used to the way they fit. Additionally, should the helmet need to be scrapped, say due to a low speed, low side incident, the Bluetooth system can again be moved to the new helmet, Sam. Sam, I had a lot of people echoing exactly this, i.e. don't buy 
uh, a system built into a helmet because you need the flexibility to move between different helmets depending on what helmet you want to wear and also if something happens to your helmet it would be a very expensive thing if you drop your helmet and feel the need to get rid of it because of that drop. I also often find this problem especially in Bali here where I've been wearing so many different helmets with the different bikes we've been testing. I've found that 70% of helmets that I've been trying have been the, oh, the agony. Does anyone else have this problem? Some helmets are completely circular. So it's agony on the front of your head here, loads of space on the side, but it's so painful there I can't wear it. Sometimes I'm asking the, the motorcycle hire shop to try four or five different helmets before I actually get one that fits me correctly. So, mm-hmm, probably thinking about it, the, the most important thing is finding a helmet that fits. The problem with that is, especially if you don't live near a good, a good biking shop that sells lots of different helmets, you're often not allowed to return helmets because there's no way the shop can know and tell me if I'm wrong here, but there's no way the shop can know if you've dropped a helmet and that would be in breach of safety regulations if you drop a helmet then try and send it back. So I think a lot of the time it may be hard to return a helmet, but I do welcome people telling me if I'm wrong there. So it's often very good to go to a shop and try helmets on first because the difference between some helmets for fit is gigantic. Gigantic. I know myself, I've probably had about 12 helmets and I only actually now own two full face helmets purely because they're the two that fit me best. The rest I've had to move on because they're not quite the right fit for me. I move on. This is a really interesting one from Carlos. Freddie, a quick update regarding the comm systems and Bluetooth helmets. I own custom earplugs with Bluetooth speakers that block out turbulence. Now this is interesting. Okay, so Carlos owns earplugs. They're earplugs that go in the ear with Bluetooth speakers that block out the turbulence wind noise and any unwanted sounds from the exhaust. It's a UK company called ultimateear.com. So ultimateear.com. Interesting. I've heard of this company. Uh, you don't have to use them all the time. Just carry them in a little case with you and plug them in when necessary. It's a game changer. The advantage over Senna is I don't have to blast the volume over the turbulent sound, so the ride becomes more relaxing and less stressful. And it takes care of any future ear problems with regards to the loud sound coming from the exhaust and the wind noise. It's worth looking into uh, as an experienced rider. They're designed to let in some of the sound so they don't act like an earplug in that you get uh, from the hardware store. Carlos, I'm going to look into this because one thing about systems where it doesn't actually go into your ear, your ear it just sits over your ear, is that you're not blocking out outside sound. And the outside sound is often quite loud and it can be damaging for your ears. So to be able to hear over that sound, you need to turn up your, your speaker sound to such a considerable level that it's above the already loud level of the road and the exhaust and everything around you. So this ultimate ear could be an extremely good solution to protect your ears from everything outside and get the best quality 
best quality sound. This, this, I've had a lot of people messaging about. And it's about a Honda that so many people would love to see in Europe. And it's the Honda CB350. This came in from Pete. Freddie, we were wondering if you think the Japanese manufacturers are missing a trick not importing some of the Asian market bikes to the UK. The Honda CB350RS is a perfect example. I could have picked about four people uh, mentioning exactly this. Let me see if I can get this up. This is a retro Honda, 350cc of course, and it looks superb. I'll put a picture of it up here. Stunningly well proportioned. It doesn't look like a small bike. It's probably exactly Honda's answer to a, a mix between the Royal Enfield Classic 350 or a smaller version of the Interceptor, but this would come in, it would come in bang on in line against the Royal Enfield Classic 350. It's a superb looking thing. And if Honda bring this over to the European market, I have no question at all or no doubt in my mind, this bike would sell. Especially the fact that Honda now have the, the monkey bike, the Grom, the Honda Super Cub that have all come out, coupled with the Neo Retro, Rebel 1100 and 500, this would sit perfectly. And people love old Honda bikes. I think that has to come to the UK. I think there are initial talks of it potentially coming. I, I believe they're made in India. And I think they sold, I can't remember over what space of time, just reading the article now from Visor Down, something like 10,000 units in a relatively short space of time in India. So this can sell. Come to UK, come to the US, probably Europe actually more than US and it would work. No doubt about it. Stunning thing. I will. Okay, I'm coming to close to the wrap up and I've got, I've got two final bits as, as the wrap up here. And this is a few bits of insight from older riders. So how riders with a few decades of experience, how their taste in bikes changes. Two examples here. Hi Freddie, old chap, how's tricks? I wanted to tell you a recent moment of clarity I had. After having ridden an RD500, it's embarrassing but I can't picture it, so there's a picture. Fireblades and a Thunder Ace as a younger man. I was in the market for a new bike to have fun on Sundays and weekends. I was looking at various naked things, bikes, Freddie, of course, and larger, en and larger engined bits of kit. Anyway, I, I could not decide, um, and my son was 21 a few weeks ago, and we all went karting. And cards on the table, I used to be a bit of a legend on the carts some decades ago. Right helmet on and in I get and within 10 seconds I realised I'm too old for this beep. Everything was just too fast and the reactions I once had have now diminished. It was the moment I realised I don't want to speed anymore or that massive rush I used to get with big bikes. I want slow and steady predictable motoring and not having a widow maker 
that with 20% more throttle than needed has me heading towards, towards the hedge on the twisties. So before I could talk myself out of it, I bought a 2022 Royal Enfield Classic 350. Oh, this is art in my favorite color. I have to put a picture of this up here from when I saw it in Barcelona in halcyon gray. I'm, I'm interjecting here. If anyone's looking at a Royal Enfield Classic 350, don't be put, put off by the way Halcyon Grey looks on the website. It doesn't look amazing on the websites and the, the online images of Halcyon Grey Classic 350 do not do it justice. When I saw a Halcyon Grey Classic 350 in a dealer in the flesh for the first time, I almost collapsed right in the showroom in Barcelona completely passed out. It was one of the most beautiful bikes I've ever seen in my life. Right, I carry on. In House in Grey, and I loved it. I think many of us with a few quid in older age want to relive our youth and think we're seeking the same thrills. But I, for one, uh, well, I for one thought I was. But I wasn't, and I couldn't be happier with the steady pace of the Enfield. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And the second, Freddie, I recently started to listen uh, to some of your podcasts and was particularly interested in the CB900F. When I was in my early 20s, I had a beautiful 900F. My mate had a CBX, so we rode as a pigeon pair. This would have been between 1982 and 1985. And we rode these bikes like Helen back across South London and down into Kent and Surrey. So many stories. I loved my 900F. I bought it on a rainy uh, Saturday from a dealer in North London. The engine was so big it sounded like a car. I'd never ridden anything that big. I tiptoed out of Tottenham into the rain and in three months I was redlining it everywhere. Suddenly it wasn't quick enough. So shortly afterwards I kept the black tank, added a two to four lipped seat, four to one Harris pipes, smooth bore carbs, bell mouth air filters, Marzocchi, rear shocks, lots of chrome, even chrome side stand, stainless brake lines and competition clutch, plus the rejetted or plus the rejetting of the four carbs. This bike now had massive power. <laughs> It now had a massive power band that started at three and a half thousand revs and just kept going. I could pull proper power wheelies from a hundred meters, oh, for a hundred meters, which always surprised the pillion, pass the pillion passenger. My left hand uh, often had to reach up for an ankle. Anyway, I loved this bike uh, as I had so many memories on it, but I sold it in 1985 for, uh, for 1,000 great British pounds to move to Australia. I'm now riding around on a new Triumph Speedmaster 2022 and loving it. Different riding style when you're 60. Plus, I'm restoring my father-in-law's 1978 RD400. But that's another story. Mark, I love that. Mark, thank you. Over to Australia, fantastic. Right, wrap it up there. Thank you to Excel Moto for sponsoring this week's episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Get in touch. All of the contact details below on Instagram, email, and, of course, comment below. Thank you so much, all. 
Have a brilliant week.